Well, it is such a joy to be back. Um, it's about 5,000 miles or so in, tra- in total travel, and uh, I'm home again. And after traveling in the Southwest for so many days and getting home, you just don't realize how important green grass looks to you until you get back to Indiana and the Midwest. So what a blessing it is, really, just to have green grass. Yeah, we got to mow it and uh, tend to it, but it accomplishes so much good. It allows all the other plants to grow and gives firm things up in the soil, whereas out in the southwest, you've got just a lot of barren, majestic desolation, a lot of desolation, but it is majestic and it is beautiful and uh, definitely is a ministry to you. So, uh, but it is great to be home. I was able to check in on some of the guest speakers on the uh, the Mission Sunday, and then the Destiny Rescue speaker and Matt Gaff last week. Thank you so much, team, for doing an incredible job of uh, just, in my absence, just stepping up and, and uh, just hitting the home run for the whole team. And just thank you so much. I'm so proud of you all and the lives that you're living and, and just the ministry God is doing through your life where you are. And that's really bottom line, isn't it, is letting the love of the Lord flow through you where you are and where you're at. So... That's how we want to approach this thing. But uh, it is great uh, to be home and to kind of get in the swing of things. Uh, you'll know uh, from previous Biblical Worldview weekends that we've had guest speakers from all over the nation, really, in the last few years. And uh, a couple of those speakers, Russ Miller spoke here a couple of years ago. Helmut Welk spoke here uh, a little shorter, maybe a year and a half or a year or so ago. Uh, that Helmet was here, not, not even that long, actually. He was here somewhat recently. But those two guys team up and do, do a teaching tour of the Grand Canyon. And uh, not only the, of the Grand Canyon, but of the staircase, that what's called the Grand Staircase, that works its way down um, from Bryce all the way down uh, to the Grand Canyon. And so um, I was privileged to be able to go and not only take in the incredible, majestic beauty of the Southwest, but I was able to go and, and at selected places on that itinerary, was able, at the, for example, at the rim of the canyon, the Grand Canyon, or down the Colorado River, there was these incredible uh, lessons and, and uh, just teaching moments. People not even part of our tour, 40, 50 or more people would just grab onto that tour and would just listen to these guys just explain and expand and amplify what the meaning of the uh, sedimentary rock layers meant and what you were looking at there and just uh, the missing sediment via the buttes that reveal that's there in the Grand Canyon and, and the, the missing sediment that's above the rim of the canyon uh, typified in the buttes that are there. Just incredible insights and uh, it, it, pre- it presents a very compelling case for a biblical worldview of our origins. A very powerful case for that. Uh, and so, uh, so a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I left in my pickup truck and we drove to Missouri, spent a night with relatives. That's always good if that works out. A lot of miles to travel. And then from there to Kansas City, I dropped my wife uh, to take care of, help take care of two granddaughters. And then I, I drove on uh, to see Rocky Mountain National, then down to see Levi in Colorado Springs. He and his wife live in Colorado Springs, and they spent a night there, and then went on out to um, Utah, and there took in um, Arches National Park. 
I took in Canyonlands National Park by mistake. Didn't know where I was. Came in the back door. Didn't know you could do that. You know, you have not lived until you have been lost in the southwest, 90 degrees, sleeping in a camp topper, a, a, a truck camper. Now that's living right there. And not knowing where I was, I didn't open my windows very much because I wanted to at least give myself a few seconds to fend off any intruder that might happen upon the, the Indiana camper here. And so I didn't get a lot of ventilation, so 90 degrees in a truck camper, not sure about what the morning was going to hold. And uh, I got up about 4.30, having sweated profusely and lost much weight, I'm sure, with an appetite that basically had left me because I couldn't, it was just too hot to think about eating. Uh, but I got up, and I got my gear together, and off I went. But before I took off, I just stopped and paused, and I looked up, and I've never seen as many stars as I could see there in some rural place in, in uh, uh, Utah. I just had no idea you could see that much light in the heavens uh, because I guess all the light pollution where we live and other places and the cities and things, you don't see as much. But there, my goodness, it just put on a show. Ended up driving through Canyonland's back door, went up the neck of a mesa, had no idea where I was there even. And uh, the way the road is cut, it's camouflaged. You zigzag back and forth with switchbacks. You couldn't even see, I couldn't even see the road. The direction I was going, I couldn't even see the road. Kind of like Indiana Jones taking the step, wondering if anything's going to be underneath me. And uh, just glad I didn't meet anybody and had to back out of that situation. That had been interesting. Uh, but uh, Canyonlands, Moab, real quick, got a shower, went to Arches National Park, down to, uh, uh, from Arches and, uh, or Canyonland, went up to Bryce uh, National Park. Okay, Bryce Canyon, it's the beginning of the Grand Staircase. And then uh, worked my way down to Zion National Park, down to the Grand Canyon. And before I got there, I stopped at the Glen, uh, Glen, uh, uh, Glen Recreational, National Recreational Area, Glen uh, Dam. And that's where, right 17 miles before the Grand Canyon begins. And it's, it's called the Underwater National Park. Uh, the Glen Canyon Dam, Underground National Park, because they flooded uh, all the... Uh, the canyons and the ravines and so it's like all underwater and you have to see it by boat and so all the boaters can go and they literally get lost in some of those canyons it's just how vast and it is when they've dammed up the uh, the lake there Lake Powell and so and then from there went down to Phoenix my wife caught a flight from uh, Kansas City down to Phoenix and then we uh, we convened and got on grab grabbed hold of the tour then and the tour took over from there and we actually uh, we left from Phoenix up through Flagstaff, up to Page, Arizona, and then we saw the South Rim and the North Rim, Antelope Canyon. Uh, we saw just the Slot Canyon not, not too far away. I was able to walk. Uh, slide 25, 25 and 26 will show you some, and I'll just reference a bunch of slides this morning. Some of these Slot Canyons, just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the water just cutting through there. And if you see just a couple drops of water that comes through those canyons, turn around and get out because the water is coming. All right? We didn't see any drops of water. I was watching for them. But just a couple drops of water, you turn around and get out of there as quick as possible because if you don't, by the time you get out, probably be up to your ankles or your knees. Uh, it's just it comes fast. But it's a beautiful, beautiful experience. Uh, slide 26 there, yeah. And so... 
I walk with dinosaur tracks, slide number 27. Uh, I floated on the Colorado River, slide 24. Uh, and of course, was able to take in the, the Grand Canyon North Rim and the South Rim. And I really like the North Rim, especially because it's less commercialized, it's higher in elevation, about 1,000 feet higher. And uh, the views are stunning with pinyon and ponderosa pines. And about 90% of the Grand Canyon visitors hit the South Rim. So a lot of pavement, a lot of people. Uh, Five million people, 90% of those go to the South Rim. So it's easier to get to and people just kind of hit it and go. But uh, the North Rim I found to be very, uh, just uh, very appealing. It's more rustic and, and uh, had just the, the opportunity to move around a little bit and take in some of the scenery. Absolutely incredible, and I've struggled, quite honestly, trying to articulate to you and to capture just what that experience was like and what it's been like and the impact it's had on my life personally. And I, I, I guess if we go to my title slide, A Beautiful Scar, that probably the most succinct way I could talk to you about what I've experienced is that I would just call it Grand Canyon, a beautiful scar. And we'll look in just a few moments out of Genesis 7, some interesting insights there. But uh, it is a beautiful scar in that, and there's a lot of implications involved because we know that uh, the global flood is a result of, of judgment on a re very rebellious a presumptuous, bold uh, 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 population at the world at that time. Uh, people, in fact, Genesis 6-5 says the intents of their heart was only evil continuously. And, and what that tells me is that when we see something like the Grand Canyon and we see that it's an, out, an outflow or, or a consequence, a result of a global flood, which is a judgment of God, we think in terms of judgment, we think in terms of, of uh, we tried to get away some, with something and we, we didn't make it and there's scars that result from that. And maybe that's been your story in your life. Maybe you thought, well, I'll try to get away with this. And maybe I can just kind of slip by the radar on this one. You ever tried to do that in your life? Sometimes we do that as people. We're human beings and we'll do that. And sometimes it doesn't go like we planned. And as a result of that, there are scars that are left over in our life. And that's what happened on a global scale with humanity. We thought we would do our own thing. And we would live life outside of God's purposes and design. And as a result, there was judgment, a global judgment. And, this, and the flood was not just a gentle rain shower and you could sing and just kind of take your bath in the rain kind of deal. It was a cataclysmic global, volcanic, fissure rupturing, uh, tectonic plate smashing event. And you'll see this in Genesis 7. That just totally revamped planet Earth. It was a total revamp of it. And what's crazy is that this, the result of that event has left scars all over our planet and what I'm so encouraged by this morning is that even though this global event has left scars all over our planet, in fact, there's Grand Canyons in the oceans, deeper than even the Grand Canyon that you see. And so our whole globe 
has been stamped with this mark of judgment. But the wonder of it all, praise God, is that it's a beautiful scar. That even though there's judgment, there's beauty in the judgment. And that's only God that can pull that off. And I think a lot of times, and, 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 and that just the, the, uh, the way I'm entitling it this morning, I want to convey that as much that, that sometimes we live our lives thinking that we'll get away with something. It doesn't go like we thought it would go. And there are scars that result. And our tendency is to, is to live in our wounds and to hang on to our wounds. But the fact that there's a scar indicates that the wounds of our life have been healed. God has brought about a healing. And there's a scar that results from that deep inner healing. Grand Canyon is a beautiful scar. It's a beautiful scar. Yes, it testifies to judgment. But even in the judgment, there is some beauty. In fact, when you see the Grand Canyon this way, it will set you up for personal conversion. When you see all the beauty, you're going to wonder where the beautiful one comes from. Where did all the beauty come from? And so it's going to set you up for personal conversion if you'll see the Grand Canyon and other things in this, on this planet in this way. Uh, it will set you up for powerful personal conversations. And it will set you up for your personal challenge, to face your personal challenge. And that is turning wounds into scars. Because so many times we can... We, we want to live a wounded life. We never want to heal the thing that's hurt us the most. And we live wounded. And I don't know what it is about beauty, but on more than one occasion, when I have been immersed in beauty, all the woundedness of my life, all the inward hurts of my life that I want to obsess over and focus on and define every relationship around it, all of that stuff, somehow beauty sneaks in the back door of my defenses and it brings me face to face with the one who is beautiful. And it's happened on more than one occasion. It happened at Pictured Rocks and the UP. It's happened at other places that I've visited, but especially here, that it makes you want to let go of your wounds and let God do some healing. I can't altogether explain it. It's just how it works. So when you see the Grand Canyon, it's not just judgment, it's beautiful, and it's a scar, and it implies so many good things, and it implies many things not just globally and geologically and biblically, but it, it implies some good things in your life personally. Uh, and when you see it this way, those three things that I just mentioned will really it will really take shape. Uh, so I think when you see it this way, like I said, uh, it will set you up for personal conversion. When you see this Grand Canyon is a beautiful scar, it will set you up for personal conversion. Here's what I mean. Slide number 44. Uh, this is of Tom Vale, a picture of Tom Vale on slide number 44 for me. He was a raft guide, and he has taken thousands of people 
through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River. And in 1980, he went on his first river trip. He was working, I think, a job in California. He ended up resigning that job, going to work uh, on, the, on the Grand Canyon. He went on his first trip in 1980. And he said, I thought evolution was responsible for forming the canyon, millions of years of particle by particle deposition, inter- interspersed by long periods of erosion. That was my worldview. That's what I thought. That was my set of assumptions that colored the lens through which I looked at this Grand Canyon. And it always left me empty, he says. But that's how I saw it. And uh, in 1994, after actually becoming a, a river guide on the Colorado River down through the Grand Canyon, he led hundreds and thousands of these, uh, he was on a tour and he was teaching a lot on the river. And in 1994, a lady named Paula was on Tom's, one, one of Tom's river trip tours down the Grand Canyon. He said, Paula was religious. I wasn't. Um, Paula's language was more refined. Tom says my language was just a little more colorful than Paula's. And uh, my marriage had fallen apart. And Paula's relationships seemed to be healthy and, and whole. And Tom said, my worldview of life was to have fun. But he said her worldview was to have a personal relationship with the Lord. (laughs) And it perplexed Tom because an evolutionary worldview seeks to eliminate God from everything. In fact, he says this in his book, Grand Canyon. He says, the logical extension of all this, that we are not responsible to anyone, that there are no absolute truths in life, that we set our own rules, and this life is all there is. He said, that was the backdrop for my lifestyle. Tom says, Paula and he had many conversations on that river raft trip down the Grand Canyon on a lot of different topics related to the Grand Canyon and and, uh, some of the evidence of that global flood idea. After that tour was over, and all those conversations concluded, they had a correspondence, and she mailed a Bible to Tom with a prayer written in the Bible. And she says in this prayer, she writes in this Bible, Dear Lord, I know I have done wrong, that I missed the mark of perfection. I am willing to turn from my sins. I believe Jesus Christ died for me. I receive you in my life as my Lord and Savior as best I know right now. Tom said, I carried that Bible with me everywhere. When I went to other tours that I did and I mountain climbing expeditions and other things, and he says, I'm reading this Bible and reading this prayer over and over. And and, and in the one trip I took, tour I took of a mountain climbing expedition, he said, by the time I got back, he said, "I, I have come to Christ, thinking about my conversations with Paula. And he said he knew the evolutionary model was unbelievable. But he felt relieved because he knew the Bible's account of history made so much more sense of the data in the world. And I will, I've shared with you how many times, I don't know how many times, I'll continue to say it, that the, the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, has the best explanation of all of reality, of all that you see. Whether it's a beautiful Grand Canyon or the DNA or the telescope out, wherever you look, whatever you're searching, it gives you the best explanation of why things are the way they are. Well, Paula and Tom's relationship never concluded, 
In fact, he somehow convinced her to say yes. And they were married, and they started Canyon Ministries, which is their way of sharing the majesty of the Grand Canyon from a biblical worldview. And he says this. He says, I hope you'll come to believe, as I do, that the Grand Canyon is not only a chilling museum of death, with its trillions of fossilized creatures who were terrorized as a wall of mud and water froze them in time. It is also a reminder that God's word is true and can be relied upon, that God keeps his word. And so the global flood on planet Earth carved out, the global flood and the retreating floodwaters carved out these canyons and, these incre- and leaving behind fossilized graveyards and mountain ranges and coal and oil and natural gas deposits and submarine canyons and geologic compression and, and the Grand Canyon. It was all a result of judgment. And we, and we live in a moral universe and sin brings judgment for the God behind it. He cares about right and wrong. But there's a beauty in the judgment. He's merciful and beautiful. And he he does something beautiful in the messes of it all. And just like Noah had the ark, and that was their mode, their means of salvation. That was their God's provision for them to float on this massive geologic upheaval that was taking place both on the earth and the atmospheric heavens. God provided a way of salvation, a way of escape. And as we get further into the Bible and into the New Testament, we see that God's new ark is that of Christ himself. And we just sang about it this morning. And that it's so imperative to to get on the ark. And the question I got and the question we have to ask is, what are you building? What are you building? Will it float? What are you building your life on? Who are you building your life on? Will Will it float or will it turn to ash? In the great day where God holds humankind accountable and of course we know that it's not what we can build it's who has already built this ark for us and it's so incredible when you see the gospel of what God has done even in the judgment there is beauty and there's beauty in the scar Chuck Colson wrote a book the body several years ago and he says it's been said the church is like Noah's ark the stench inside would be unbearable if it weren't for the storm outside And so often the stench and scarring in life is relational, isn't it? The stuff that happens, stuff gets buried in our life. And there's these deposits and there's these things that are kind of frozen in time. And it it indicates devastating loss. Somehow when you look at the Grand Canyon, you see that that thing is recovered. There's animals and there's plants and there's beauty. Somehow there's recovery in the losses and the judgment and the heartache. That's a picture what God can do in your life. You're going to have a Grand Canyon rip through your heart. And the stench on the outside of this thing makes what you're going through. The stench on the inside is is possible. Of of all the hurt, it's possible because of the stuff that's going on on the outside. You know that there's there's no other way to process the wounds and hurts of life. Outside of a God who can enter into that woundedness, the mess, and bring about a healing. And so it will set you up. When you look at the Grand Canyon as a beautiful scar, it will set you up as 
for personal conversion. It will set you up for personal conversations. And, and you wonder about some of the conversations that Paula and Tom had, an evolutionist with a biblical worldview person who had these conversations day after day on the river. And what did they talk about? What kinds of things factored into Tom's decision to actually open up his life and to have a mega worldview shift in his thinking about his origins and about where things came from? Well, I firmly believe some of the things that I'll mention to you here this morning are things that will set you up to have these powerful personal conversations, not only in a, impacting your own personal worldview, but that uh, it will set you up uh, to have some conversations with others that will inevitably point them back to the one who, ha- who is behind all the beauty, the one who has impacted our world, who has stamped his, his uh, work on our planet. So moms and dads will be forced to, to sit down with sons and daughters at canyon rims and be able to tell them and explain to them the true story of our origins and of what happened and how God worked and the beauty that can come from it. You know, I've got just real quickly here like 10 lessons that I learned the Grand Canyon trip taught me and that I learned on my trip. First of all, I'm going to tell you right now, it's hot in Phoenix. 116 degrees. You know how when you cook, you ladies and guys, some of you, you cook your chocolate chip, you bake your chocolate chip cookies, put them in the oven, you want to open the door and check them to see if they're done? Maybe you do chicken nuggets, all right? Whatever. You got them in the oven, you open the door and you check it and make sure they're done or they're getting close. And when you open the door, it goes woof, like that, the oven heat. That's exactly what it felt like when I stepped out of the hotel in, at Phoenix. 116 degrees, whoosh, just like that. It's like I feel like I'm done after spending a little bit of uh, time in Phoenix. But I want to tell you right now, it's a different world. It's a, a lot of lessons like this in terms of just how to prepare for that, having plenty of water, you know, being able to navigate that and understand the difference of, of the world that you're in there. But a lot of different lessons that, that the Grand Canyon trip taught me. First lesson when you're right there on the canyon rim is that you've got to watch your step because you're one step away from taking the express route to the bottom of the canyon. Watch your step. And it's not always protected by railing, and so a lot of that there, but you have to be ready. And I can't believe that people actually dangle their feet over the edge. And my belly's queasy after walking some of these, some of these walks, you know, and the, their, their feet will dangle over the edge, and they'll, and they'll take these risky positions to get that epic Instagram photograph, Instagram-worthy photograph. But you've got to watch your step. Be careful. I think the second thing that the Grand Canyon trip taught me is that it triggers a a worship impulse inside you that can only be complete when you share the experience with other people. It's not complete. It would have been so flat without the biblical worldview insights. It would have been so flat if I couldn't look over at someone and say, wow, with them. Look at that. And somehow that completes it. And, And it makes it it somehow amplifies the one who's made it. So important just to turn your eyes toward God. In fact, in all the canyons that I was in 
over this week period of time. And it didn't matter if you were French. It didn't matter if you were German. It didn't matter if you were a Spaniard. It didn't matter if you were a Canadian or an American, uh, Mexican or uh, African. It did not matter where you were from. The response was the same all through those canyons. And that was the impulse to look up. Nobody was doing this. Everybody was doing this. Everybody. And maybe that's the impulse that God creates. And that's part of the beauty of the scar. Is that when you're in the canyon, you can't help but look up. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in a Grand Canyon. You don't know how to navigate out of this thing. There's people that die in the Grand Canyon. About 12, average of 10, 12 people die in the Grand Canyon every year. They don't know how to navigate it. They get in over their heads. Boston Marathon runners overheat in the canyon. Can't get out. Lose their life. Maybe that's you today. You're in a Grand Canyon. You don't know how to get out of it. Look up. That's the message of the Grand Canyon. Taught me that. I think another lesson the Grand Canyon taught me was that, you know, there's many things you can say about it and about being there. There's sunsets and sunrises. There's trails and campouts. There's lookout points and colorful layers. But more than anything else, it's, like I said, it's a scar from a wound our planet received long ago during and after the global flood. The Grand Canyon, slide 21, the Grand Canyon was formed rapidly, it, and it's located in a place that it shouldn't be. It cuts right through the Kaibab upwarp. And that means if evolutionists are right, the Colorado River flowed uphill for millions of years and cut through a wall of rock in the form of a canyon. But water doesn't flow uphill. It doesn't go uphill. It finds a way around. It does that in Indiana. It does that in West Virginia. It does that in Arizona or Utah or Colorado. I never, not one time did I see water flowing uphill. And yet, we are told by so many people that the, the Colorado River, you can see the upwarp and the Grand Canyon cuts through it. And instead of that water, like water ordinarily would go around the uphill, it would work around where the Vermilion Cliffs, it would work around in the plateau, the lower elevations. This thing starts at 3,000 feet elevation. And the Grand Canyon climbs up to about 8,000 feet elevation. The river doesn't go uphill. It goes around. There has to be an incredible seismic draining event with pressure under massive amounts of water under various states of pressure to cut a scar through the canyon just like this. The Grand Canyon is 277 miles long. It's up to 18 miles wide, averaging about 10. In some places, it's over a mile deep with major layers of stunning strata visible. Slide 29, if you would, for me. The flood removed up to one miles of sediment, at least one, maybe more, above the canyon rim. And the Kaibab upwarp created an earthen dam. Huge lakes that were three times bigger than Lake Michigan were to the north of it. Earthen dams, the natural runoff of all the water, these earthen dams broke and gave way. 
fact, one author calls it the Grand Lake. We always talk about the Grand Canyon. It's the Grand Lake that was north of the canyon. As big as, bigger than Lake Michigan, if you can imagine all the water. And we know that there's evidence for these lakes because there's fossils of freshwater fish and frogs and beaver and flamingo 6,000 feet above sea level. And that dam breaches probably during a post-flood runoff. And picture all that water rushing through the Grand Canyon post-flood, cutting it quickly in days or weeks, not years, in days or weeks. Imagine water flowing 100 miles per hour, carrying sand grains, boulders, eroding sediments, redepositing them elsewhere. The flood and post-flood runoff from large bodies of water trapped by this up-warped plateau gave way. It's not a little bit of water and a lot of time. It's a lot of water in a short period of time under various states of pressure, and it cut these dramatic formations through walls of rock. A massive worldwide upheaval occurring in the last stages of a year-long flood of 377 days. The uplifted Colorado Plateau led to the formation of the Grand Canyon in northern Arizona. And it did so in a very short period of time. In fact, some of the sedimentary rock, you can see that. I was on the Colorado River. I saw the rock. It goes like this. It's nice pancake layers. There's no signs of erosion millions of years between layers. It's uh, It's silly. Okay, it's not, it's, it's very even, no signs of erosion, very little signs of erosion, okay, it's, a, it's, it's layer after layer based on grain weight and density of, of sediment that was layered down, it was still moist, in the uproar it bends like this, the rock doesn't break, it's still soft from the, from the impact of the flood, and it goes like this, and it's all one solid piece, well rock doesn't bend like that, unless it's soft, the sediment's soft, pliable. When you see that, and you understand that, the, 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 the best explanation for Grand Canyon and why we have it, the best explanation is, in fact, exactly what the Bible tells you. It was the result of a global flood. Incredible what God did in the Grand Canyon. In fact, and I'm just going to try to tailor this to the to the time I've got allotted here uh, this morning. And I just want to make this point. It's so important to make this point. And that is that uh, one of the greatest evidences of this, uh, of uh, just like a little microcosm of the Grand Canyon could actually be observed at Mount St. Helens, which some of you remember erupted uh, back May 18th, 1980. Slide number 33, if you would, for me. Uh, this is a volcano that erupts in the state of Washington and it provided researchers with proof that strata layers containing uh, these fossils from very, and the polystrate fossils formed very rapidly. In fact, it toppled 150 square miles of forest in six minutes, slide number 34. And during the eruption, Spirit Lake just north of the volcano was filled with blown down trees and many of these soon waterlogged and began to float with the heavier uh, end down. And eventually they sank to the bottom in an upright position where they were soon buried by inflowing sediments. And today the bottom of Spirit Lake near Mount St. Helens is littered with approximately 50,000 polystrate tree trunks. What's a polystrate fossil? Go to slide number 28 for me. Slide number 28. And you're going to see this. That's a polystrate fossil. That's a tree 
that's embedded down through across multiple layers of sediment. Well, if each of those layers of sediment were millions of years, uh, one inch of sediment per every hundred years must take millions of years to form, right? That's our thought. That's what typical storyline, all right? Well, you've got a tree coming down through all those sediments. How does a tree, a wooden tree, last for millions of years for all those sediments to form around it? No go. It doesn't do that. Trees, wood doesn't last that long. It's going to rot, right? You've got these fossils like that up through multiple layers of sediment. It can't be millions of years with each of those layers of sediments. That's not even good science, okay? And so you see this, and Mount St. Helens gives us this, this a picture. And these polystrate fossils, they traverse these multiple strata layers. And, and this is what secularists will teach and claim that these various layers formed over millions and millions of years of time, and we've got a tree upright like that that shows you and tells you a different story. In fact, when Mount St. Helens erupted, uh, it had an energy output, slide number 35, it had the energy output of several thousand atomic bombs, and it caused landslides and ash falls, and then on March 19, 1982, the volcano erupted again. This time there was snow in the crater, and this helped to create a vast mud flow, which in one or two days it breached through the rock side and the pumice deposits from the previous 1980 eruption, and it formed a canyon system, slide number 36, a canyon system over 100 feet deep, and some of it, some of it cut through solid rock. And later the Tuttle River which had been dammed back by the landslide, it burst its banks and it started to make its path down the new canyon. And this system is now known as the Little Grand Canyon of the Tuttle River in Washington. Slide number 36 and slide number 37. Those canyon walls are stratified in a small way, just like the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Slide number 38. And, and those canyon walls are stratified. You can see it. 38 and 39, they're, they're stratified and they're hardened as if they've been millions and millions of years in the making. Church, you have been sold a lie by a secular worldview proponent who have told you it takes millions and millions of years for these layers of sediment to form. It takes but a short period of time, in fact, and the face of the land at Mount St. Helens was changed by steam blasts, landslides, water waves, hot pumice, ash, mud flows. Steve Austin, geologist, biblical worldview geologist, calls Mount St. Helens the Rosetta Stone of catastrophic geology. It demonstrates it doesn't take nearly as long to create certain geological structures as had been previously assumed. Isn't that incredible? Wow. When you see this... And you understand this. That's one of the lessons that the Grand Canyon taught me. Another lesson that it, it teaches me and that it will teach you is the best evidence for how we got the Grand Canyon for the global flood is not actually in the canyon. It's behind you in the form of buttes. Slide number 22. Slide 22. Look at, that's, a, that's a red butte. Look at the next slide. Slide 23. That's cedar butte. These are erosionary remnants. Um, this is layers of sediment that used to be there, and now it's been washed away 900-foot-tall centuries. Uh, they're, they're, they're at the south 
rim of the Grand Canyon. And they stand like guards trying to, trying to convey and communicate the true story of the canyon. All those, the mile of sediment, that those, those buttes were, at once it was solid, it was solid sedimentary layers. And something cataclysmic has washed away. And those are erosionary remnants of a massive amount of water that's washed through there and taken those, uh, those layers of sediment. The message of the global flood is built right into the sedimentary layers, pancaked together, and the buttes tell the true story. Another lesson I, I learned at the Grand Canyon was it's important to know Genesis 7 when you go to the Grand Canyon. You look on slide number 11, You'll see some of this in the 600th year of Noah's life. On the 17th day of the second month on that day. Why does he give details like that? Why the year, the month, and the day? Because Moses is writing. He's showing you that there's nothing figurative or symbolic about what he's conveying to you. He's given you actual history. Genesis is history. It really happened. The Bible is not primarily a book of religion. It's a book of history with some theology mixed in. And so it's a book of history. And he says, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. Subterranean waters beneath the surface of the earth. Massive reservoirs. Water under the surface of the earth. When we look at the word burst forth really is, it conveys the idea of a splitting or a ripping open. These, these ex, this extraordinary force underneath at the, at the crust level. And, and from the start of the flood, the fountains of the deep began to gradually split apart along ever-widening fissures from, the, from which the mountains, fountains of the deep had been rushing. And these hydraulic forces and tectonic movements of the earth's crust in a short period of time, it pressurized explosions, sending stuff miles into the atmosphere. It would make Mount St. Helens look like a little burp compared to this massive eruption, this vomiting of this collision of tectonic plates that Moses is trying to convey, the land masses smashing together, resulting in mountains uprising, mountains that weren't there before the flood, uh, mountains that, that are a result of the flood. So you don't have to have as much water as you think you need to cover all the mountains of the earth if they weren't there pre-flood. And you have this massive collision and the floodgates, verse 11, of the heavens were open. And notice the sequence. It's the crust that explodes and then, and then the heavens open. And so there seems to be some kind of a correlation between something being sprayed into the atmosphere, something releasing. And, and verse 12, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So it was more than just a gentle rain for 40 days. Zipper-like rifts tore through our continents. Tsunamis pounded land masses. Ocean's floors dropped. Water sloshing back and forth in sea basins. And the earth was submerged. And then the currents and the breaking of gigantic earthen dams did their work in a post-flood runoff. What's really in, what I found intriguing was that they found sand, Appalachian sand grains, in Zion National Park. How do you get sand 
from West Virginia and Virginia to end up in Zion National Park. It had to be a cataclysmic global event. Well, we can read on in verse 16. You can see the animals. We'll shorten this, okay? Noah built the boats. If you've been to the ark in the Kentucky, you can entirely see how that's possible. All the species, not all the kinds and types within a species, just all the species represented, preserved. We read this. The waters rose. Verse 17, the waters increased. Verse 18 on the, on the screen, the waters rose and increased. Verse 19, they rose greatly. Verse 20, the waters rose. It's a torrent of terms. Get a picture. He's trying to create this picture. The water rose and it rose and it rose. Layers of sediment laid down quickly, deeply. Fossils were formed. Slide 32. Fossils were formed. And I actually saw them on the top of the rim at Grand Canyon. How did seashells, how did clams, did, did clams crawl up the mountainside? 7,000, 8,000 feet? Or did something major by way of a global flood vault them into the heavens? Major tectonic plate collisions. Shooting mountains upward, dropping ocean floors. And forever changing the world that Noah knew pre-flood. There's a psalm that says in slide number 20, if you would for me. A psalm that says, he set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. Skipping down the final verses. They flowed over, the waters flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. 377 days. And the fallout from that, that scars our planet. So many things the Grand Canyon taught me. I love what it says in slide 17. God remembered Noah. He didn't forget about him. It's just a way of saying that God acted on the basis of his promise to save Noah. Even after this long flood, if you compute, if you go to Genesis 7 and 8, you compute the time frame uh, the animals entered May 10th. The rain began May 17th. The water rose till June 26th. The ark didn't touch land until October 13th. Mountaintops were seen on January 1st. Ark doors finally opened on April 1st. The land was dry enough for Noah's family to exit May 27th, one year and 10 days after the flood began. And all the fallout of that has left a beautiful scar. So the Grand Canyon has taught me a lot of things. It's taught me that God does keep his word. That you can trust the Bible. You can trust the history of the Bible. And you can trust it, God's work, even in a time of judgment and a time of accountability. We sang about it earlier today that Jesus has absorbed God's judgment, and of course he talks about the days of Noah, and it's going to be the same as it was the days of Noah, it's going to be the same in the day that precedes my coming into the world. 
And what he goes on to show us is that he absorbed God's judgment and he's the new ark and he will hold the world accountable. And the question is today, who or what are we building on? And he even gives us a promise. At that time, evidently rainbows and the way things work were a new thing. And so he sets this rainbow in the heavens. And God gives us a promise. He gives it to Noah and all mankind. I'll never do this again. And this led to other covenants. And God binds himself to our humanity and says, I'm going to save you. And I'm going to do it. But you've got to board the ark. You've got to invite me in, into your life. The rainbow, a sign of his peace, his promise. And his word is true. You know, I, as I was thinking about this, I came across the concept and the idea of a rainbow baby. I don't know if you have a rainbow baby in your family, but it's a name or a phrase that's coined for a baby that's born after, after losing a baby to miscarriage or infant loss or stillbirth or neonatal death. And the name of rainbow baby comes from the idea of a rainbow appearing in the sky after the storm. And I really hadn't thought about it before. And while the lost baby can never be replaced, the term has come to symbolize hope and healing. And whatever your losses and scars have been, God likes to create beauty and rainbows. He likes to provide rainbow babies in the wounds. I'll close with this today. A Navajo north of Flagstaff spray-painted words for those traveling on Route 89 in northern Arizona. He wrote these words. Easter Earth Spirit Rising. Easter Earth Spirit Rising. This planet, as beautiful as it is, it serves as a kind of tomb. And there's scars and there's... It's full of groans, and there's something yet in all of that, something beautiful that's being incubated here. And when we walk through the grand staircase and down, work our way down the grand staircase, and you work your way through those canyons, I come back to something I shared earlier. You have one primarily instinct, and that is to look up to the one who is at work in our world, to the one who predates all those things, to the one who stands above time and outside of time. Easter earth, spirit rising. Look up. There's beauty even in judgment. There's beauty even in the scar. You know, I've got a few scars in my life, and I'm sure you do too. When I was a little boy, I lay down on the bed, bored. And you know how that goes. And for whatever reason, don't do this, I put a penny in my mouth. Anybody ever put money in your mouth as a kid? Why do kids want to put pebbles and dirt and sticks and money in their mouth? I don't know, but they do. I put a penny in my mouth, I swallowed it. And I I told my mom about it. And my mom, of course, why'd you do that? I don't know, I just did. And they said, well, we're gonna have to go to the doctor. We went to the doctor. And I don't know why, but on the way through my intestinal tract, that penny rubbed up against a polyp. 
and that polyp started to bleed. And the doctors knew I had a problem because it was bleeding, and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Now, I didn't plan on swallowing the penny, but God had a plan. Got the polyp removed, and I got a scar. I'm not going to show you. This is back in the 70s, okay? This what little scar is now like little pinpricks, this little laser stuff. They didn't have laser stuff in the 70s when I had my polyp removed. I got a scar that's pretty sizable. Like I said, I'm not showing you, okay? My scar. But there's healing, even in the scarring. It tells a story. I was a little bit older. I got behind my brother who was swinging a baseball bat in the front yard. Boom, he's like this. He's giving this, you know. I stepped in behind him. The meat of that bat caught me right on the eyebrow. Knocked me silly. Y'all ever notice my brow? See how it protrudes out a little bit? See that? I'm kind of glad my, I have that Neanderthal thing going, you know, with this. You see what I mean? I have a little Neanderthal in my genes, I guess. I don't know. But boom, it caught that. It saved my eyesight. Had to get some stitches. I got a scar on my eyebrow covers. You can't see it. It's a beautiful scar. Walking down the railroad track one day, bored again. Trying to figure out what I'm going to do this summer. Me and my buddy had a project. Let's go get old abandoned railroad ties that are rotted on the ends, and let's go build a bike trail with it along the riverbank. He said, okay. I said, okay. We get, the, we, get the, we get the cross ties. He's going downhill about like this steep. He's going downhill. I'm carrying it in front of me. It's got jagged edges. He decides to drop his end. What happens to me? I go, <laughs> just like that. I got me another scar. It's on this side. I got a scar here. I got a belly button. And I got a, a, an indentation here. My belly is a mess. Okay? I don't like to go shirtless. But sometimes I do because it's hot. Okay? But I'm just messed up. I'm one scar tissue filled dude. But you know those aren't my most painful scars. I've got some emotional scars and some relational scars I'll take with me to my grave. And you do too. And when you're standing at that Grand Canyon and you look at that and the hurt and the pain, God slips in the back door. Now, I love to talk geology, and I've just given you a very small portion why I believe what I believe about the Grand Canyon. I can give you a lot more. But what I don't want you to miss is that God uses beauty to slip past your defenses of hurt to say, I'm here. You got some wounds. Joey, standing by that Grand Canyon, you don't talk about your wounds right now. They're too fresh. Talk about your scars. Talk about the places where God has done a work of healing in your life. Major on that. Wounds will heal in time. Talk about your scars.
I don't know what you came to church with today. In the Grand Canyon, like I said, it's geologically amazing. The flood, all the details, Mount St. Hill, all this stuff is just intriguing to me. But even more, is I go to the Grand Canyon, I come back, and I'm, never the, and I'm just the same. That would be an awful thing. Go to my title slide, if you would, for me. You got scars. Some of you got scar tissue. And you're, you're carrying some stuff. And it's been hard. Physical stuff, yes. But the emotional, spiritual stuff, far greater scar. And I just invite you today to offload those things into the great canyon of God's grace. And let him begin to work a work of healing. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. I know there's just like just a torrent of information that we could share about this stuff. And it's exciting and it's intriguing. And we want the truth of it. We want the true story. Not only of Grand Canyon, but of all that we see in the world. And it's so clear to me in the Bible you've shared it. And I thank you for that. But I know this morning that there's far greater Grand Canyons ripping through the hearts, psyches, personhoods of each individual here. And, and those uh, wounds have been long, lifelong, and enduring. And we'll never fully get away from those. They'll always be a part of us. But hopefully not in the forms of wounds, but in the forms of scars. And I just ask and pray this morning that the beauty of who you are would overwhelm, would fill with your grace. And Lord, that wherever we are and whatever great challenge we have in front of us, not only would we have better conversations as a result of this message, better conversations as a result of this message, Tom and Paula type conversations as a result of this message, conversations that are worldview shifting and changing as a result of this message and much more reading that we will do. And may we not only have those, but Lord, also, as I said in the beginning, may we also have personal conversion that maybe our geology needs baptized, uh, that maybe our imagination needs baptized, uh, that maybe our, our, uh, our degrees and our, our chosen fields and professions and, and set perspectives, maybe we need to see that baptized into who you are and your truth and your grace. And maybe, maybe receiving you as Savior, yes, but to take that next step of saying, yes, you are my Savior, but Lord, you are also my creator, and therefore you are entitled to tell me how to live, how to live my life. For you are my maker and I belong to you. And then this morning, finally, as we said at the beginning, maybe today, as a result of this message, we will have the courage to face the personal challenge of seeing you heal a long, festering wound. And that thing is just festering, it's sitting there, it's getting infected. It's boiled up, it's red, it is so tender, it's hard to touch and talk about. 
maybe today we can lance that wound and let you and your beauty fill us with a beautiful scar that testifies of your work in our life. We ask all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Will you stand with me? Eighty, eighty-five degrees, I don't want to hear any complaints. <laughs> don't even come to me, okay? Try 116. I literally checked to see if rubber stayed on the tire. I literally did that, and it did. Praise God. Make it home. If you got any questions about the future and possibly going there, I'd be happy to be a reference for you. God bless. Y'all have a great weekend. One thing I ask, that's what